When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. New protections for tenants, but still no full regulation for letting agents. Britain's technology sector, how to get exposure to exciting new companies. And is your fund manager a closet index hugger? Welcome to the FT Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with my FT colleagues, Emma Dunkley. Hello. And Sally Davis. Hi there. Plus special studio guest, Ben Yearsley of Charles Stanley. Hello. Now, it's often said that an Englishman's home is his castle. But the reality is that we are gradually becoming a nation of renters. Home ownership in the UK peaked more than 10 years ago. And as house prices continue their seemingly inexorable rise, more and more people are remaining tenants, often for longer than they'd like to. Britain's rental market is unusual compared to those of other countries. We have a shrinking social housing market because of the sell-offs of council housing. And while residential real estate in places like the US is often owned by a company, in the UK we have an army of private landlords, most of whom are competent and honest, but some of whom are not. A third of privately rented accommodation in the UK does not meet the government's own definition of a decent home. Private landlords are helped by letting agents, who may or may not be part of an estate agency chain. Letting agents are almost completely unregulated and there have been many complaints from both tenants and landlords about dishonesty, high and unclear charges and underhand practices. This week the government introduced some new rules for the sector, but will they improve the lot of the tenant, or for that matter the landlord? Emma Dunkley joins me now. Emma, what has the government announced this week? Yes, so later this year, all lettings agents and property management firms will be required to join one of three approved redress schemes. And the idea of this is that landlords and tenants will have a more straightforward route to hold their agents to account if anything goes wrong. And these three schemes will all have the powers to investigate any sorts of hidden fees or lacking quality of service that they provide. But until now, these letting agents haven't had to join any of these three redress schemes, whereas agents that sell property have had to be a member of these schemes. Okay, and I read somewhere that something like two-fifths of letting agents aren't a member of any scheme at all. Exactly, that's correct. And I should also say that this coincides with a recent report out by the Property Ombudsman, which shows that there's record high levels of complaints by landlords and tenants against letting agents and sales agents. The report which came out this week shows that there's been a 23% increase in complaints last year compared to the year before, and that's 16,000 inquiries to these agents. 
Um, and in terms of letting specifically, about 50% of all complainants were landlords. OK, we should be very clear that this is redress. That's not the same as regulation, is it? That's right. So while this redress is aimed to give greater protection to landlords and tenants, this doesn't mean that there's any change to the regulation. In fact, there's currently no regulation in place of the private sector letting agents. And the government's also clarified that it's not intend to introduce regulation into this sector because there's an existing range of available powers already underway in the consumer protection legislation. In the announcement this week, the housing minister was keen on avoiding more red tape for landlords and and the government has made it quite clear, really, that it doesn't want to regulate buy-to-let. Why do you think this is such a big issue? You mentioned the regulations and, and and the redress that is there at the moment. What is that? I think any further red tape would stymie the sector. And this comes at a time when property prices are on the rise. There's a severe shortage of new housing. So there are lots of forecasts there'll be a lot more people looking to rent. There's a lot of red tape for landlords to comply with, including health and safety regulations, and requirements to meet furniture standards, their HMO licence. They've also got to meet standards over electrical safety, gas safety. They also have to deal with issues such as antisocial behaviour as well. So they've got quite a few things already that they've got to comply with. Now, if you're a tenant, or for that matter, a landlord, and you think you're getting poor service from a letting agent, what should you do? Your first port of call should be to complain to the letting agent itself. And then if you have no luck here, you can then go to one of the trade bodies that the letting agent might be a member of. If the letting agent isn't a member of a trade body, you can then go to a trading standards department and complain there. And failing that, the last resort would be to go to a small claims court. OK, Emma, thank you very much. There's plenty more on the business of regulating letting agents on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, you pay a fund manager to beat the index, not hug it. But how do you find a high conviction stock picker? First, though, let's look at a sector that is treated with reverence in the US, but widely dismissed in the UK. I'm talking about technology. UK investors never really recovered from the technology bust at the end of the millennium. Since then, America has given us Google, Facebook, Twitter and a rejuvenated Apple. But Britain, the country that invented computing and the World Wide Web, has produced barely a technology company of note, aside perhaps from Arm, the chip designer. Most of the few technology funds available here invest in Nasdaq-traded companies rather than UK ones. But Britain does have a technology sector, and it is possible to invest in it, if you know where to look and if you're prepared to take some risks. I'm joined now by Sally Davis, who writes about technology for the Financial Times. Sally, thanks very much for joining us. We've had Silicon Fen, and more recently we've had Silicon Roundabout, can you describe the UK tech sector to us? It certainly isn't like the tech sector in the US, is it? No, that's right. UK companies in technology do tend to be smaller and more specialist. And because we don't have the big and relatively homogenous uh, domestic consumer market in the US, we don't get some of those consumer-facing giants that generate a lot of buzz there. So it's partly why you see a company like King Entertainment, which developed the Candy Crush game and has the core of its operations in London, float on the US markets earlier this year. 
There are exceptions that prove the rule, of course, although they do tend to operate in the business-to-business space. So you mentioned Arm already from Cambridge, who provide the microchip designs that power the iPhone. And there's also the accounting behemoth Sage. But there are also some new and interesting listed companies um, operating in enterprise software who do so-called big data, which involves storing and crunching huge amounts of digital information across a network of distributed servers. So this allows businesses to store their data more securely because it's stored in multiple places and also to do clever things like predictive algorithms because they can harness combined computing power. Okay, that all sounds very specialist and niche. Is that right? That's correct. You do see a lot of other niche companies, particularly coming out of uh, the UK's universities. So, for example, in recent months, we've seen three companies come to market that are trying to commercialise graphene, the so-called miracle material. But again, those are uh, relatively niche applications at this stage. Now, many private investors in the UK were scarred by the dot-com collapse. They put money into the sort of Axa Framlington fund that that, that bombed or they lost fortunes in companies like Baltimore Technologies. Are there signs of a re-emergence of interest in uh, in technology in Britain? Are past sins been forgiven? I don't know if I'd go that far. I would say that investors here are showing an appetite for growth. For that reason, you've seen a very positive response to uh, several recent technology-enabled IPOs, many of which are operating in the online retail space. They tended to surge on their first day, although they have been quite hard hit by the sell-off in recent months. But I think the sense is that the response to those floats is partly because UK investors are keen to invest in disruptive technology companies and are looking for anything that has a veneer of technology. You mentioned a sell-off, and obviously last week there was quite a severe correction in the um, price of some technology shares in the US. Has that affected companies here, or have they been less affected because they are either smaller or they're not trading on such exciting multiples? It has affected uh, listed companies here in the UK. The sense in the market is that um, it's more of a correction than a bursting of the bubble and um, that the stocks that have been affected are those that uh, were subject to over-optimism and there are some still very interesting propositions in the market. I think what the sell-off has demonstrated is that the notion of a technology company is perhaps becoming increasingly redundant because it's very hard to group, for example, online takeaway marketplaces as a technology company alongside a company like Google. Really, it's a question about who is going to be able to use technology to fundamentally change the way a market works or create a new market, as opposed to just using technology to operate more efficiently as players in the sector always have. Okay, now if you buy a UK technology fund, you're effectively, chances are, buying a lot of exposure to the US market and to shares like Google, Apple or Microsoft or Cisco. How do ordinary investors get exposure to the UK's best technology companies, which, as you pointed out, are generally a lot smaller? That's right. Well, there is the option of uh, trading yourself on the AIM junior market. Um, And there are some specialist UK tech funds, although, as you mentioned, not very many. You have more options if you self-certify as a sophisticated investor or a high net worth individual, in which case you can go through vehicles such as the Enterprise Investment Scheme, the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme and Venture Capital Trust. Another option is to join what's called an angel syndicate, where you can go into deals into early stage startups alongside other individual investors. This is quite 
quite a good idea because early stage investing is very, very risky. The chances are you're going to lose your money in any single investment. And so it's good to have access to other people's experience and knowledge. Some other interesting options, um, which include what's called equity crowdfunding. Um, so online portals like Cedars and Square Knot, based on what you might be familiar with, Kickstarters, which involves investing very small amounts, sometimes as small as £10, into a startup that has posted a pitch. Um, and if they reach their funding target, then you get equity in exchange for your stake. And if they don't, you get your money back. Thanks very much, Sally. You can read lots more about UK technology and how to invest in it, including some more stock suggestions, in this weekend's FT Money, where it's our cover feature this week. FT Money is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of the weekend FT, which you can also read on tablets, Kindles and online at ft.com forward slash money. We'd also love to know what you think. You can leave comments on articles on our website at ft.com forward slash money, or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. The debate about active fund management versus passive has raged on for decades. Passive investments, which merely aim to track a particular index, are very cheap to run, but they will never outperform. Advocates of active management, on the other hand, say that paying a fund manager to pick stocks should help keep investors out of overvalued companies or dangerous situations. Critics say that in reality, most active managers do little better than the index and quite a few do a lot worse. They also say that the structure of the industry and its focus on asset gathering means that risk aversion is widespread. To use the words of J.M. Keynes, for a fund manager, it's better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. Many fund managers are in fact hugging the indices against which their funds are benchmarked, effectively charging high fees and doing a lot of trading, simply to achieve what an index tracker could have done for a lot less. But how do you know if your fund manager is one of this unfortunate breed? Some research out this week from State Street, the US bank, suggested that the number of holdings in a fund manager's portfolio is a key indicator. I'm joined now by Ben Yearsley, who picks funds for Charles Stanley Directs, the DIY investment platform. Ben, we've just been through the ISA season where many investors will have looked at their investments and perhaps chosen some new funds. Are there any areas, do you think, where we can fairly honestly say that a passive fund is as good an option as any other? The obvious place is the US. It's the market that's the most widely analysed, most widely covered, has, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand stocks, huge number there. But it seems to be the most difficult market to actually outperform on a long term consistent basis. And therefore that is probably the one true market where you could say, if you can't decide actually look at a, an index tracking fund or an ETF. Um, but within that, you've got a very variety of different indices you can actually look at. Uh, and that's, I suppose, a follow-on question is, it's all one and good saying you're going to buy index tracking, but what tracker do you buy and what index do you track? And if you're looking for an active manager, how do you find one who is definitely not going to rack up costs simply tracking a benchmark is it about the mandate is it about the individual is it the size of the fund or the house style or as state street have postulated the number of holdings the number of holdings is the obvious place to start if you're a fund that's trying to beat the benchmark of the FTSE 100 if you've got 90 holdings the likelihood is you're tracking the index if you've got 30 the likelihood is you are taking some active bets but it isn't all about the number of holdings. Uh, looking back at the last 25 years or so, two of the most successful managers in the UK, Anthony Bolton, for a start, had over 200 holdings 
in his Fidelity Special Sits Fund. Now, on this basis, you'd look at it and say, sorry, that's, that's tracking an index or not taking conviction. But Anthony was taking a huge conviction. So you can look at the number of holdings. Yes, it's a start. But you also need to look at how they're picking their holdings. Are they doing it uh, relative to a benchmark? Are they benchmark agnostic? So it then does come down to the mandate of the fund. What's the manager being allowed to do with the fund, with his holdings? Is he allowed to deviate from sector weightings by only 2%, 4%, 5%? Or does he ignore the benchmarks and, and the indices and manage how he wants to manage buying the companies he wants to buy? Someone made the point to us this week that uh, high conviction stock picking of the of the type you described there only really works, of course, if the stock picker is any good. Um, how do you assess the quality of the fund manager without relying too much on past performance, which, of course, we're always being told is not a guide to the future? In answer to your question, that's correct. You do have to look at how they've performed, unfortunately. But the key is not looking at just one number. Don't look at a 10-year number and say, well, he's outperformed that by that over that time period you need to break it down more and say look at yearly numbers for example how's he done over the last five discrete years has he beaten an index or the index that he's claiming to want to beat each year or three out of five years or four out of five years for example or over longer time periods and finally who do you rate at the moment as a manager who has walked the walk consistently over a reasonably long period and not been afraid to deviate from a benchmark index or indeed not to have a benchmark index mm. at all some funds just say well we'll, we'll aim for inflation plus x or... there's a whole variety out there that actually have beaten and clearly there's a whole number that have gone nowhere near a couple i would highlight one uh, alexander darwall at jupiter who manages the jupiter european investment trust and fund He's got an exceptional long-term track record, beating the index over virtually every time period. He's not interested in the index. He buys companies that he thinks are going to be long-term growth-orientated businesses. There's other ones, uh, Angus Tullock and the First State team, uh, First State Asia Pacific, a high-conviction manager, 57 stocks or 60 stocks in that portfolio. Again, great long-term average. You think how many companies he can choose from in Asia. Standard Life UK smaller companies, Harry Nimmo, fantastic long-term performance again a very tight list of holdings in both his fund and his trust there are a large number out there but there's also a large amount of uh, poorly performing managers who as you say are closet trackers and you wouldn't really want to pay for that performance okay thank you very much for joining us that was ben yearsley of charles stanley direct there's more on the pros and cons of high conviction investing including more thoughts on who does it notably well in this weekend's ft money If you want to add your own comments, let us know about a hot topic, or simply share your thoughts on something we've written, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is FTMoney, or you can go online to ft.com forward slash money, or you can send us an email. The address, once again, is money at ft.com. We will be back again next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Emma, Sally, and our special studio guest, Ben Yearsley. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts owned by a company in the uk we have an army of private landlords most of whom are competent and honest but some of whom are not a third of privately rented accommodation in the uk does not meet the government's own definition of a decent home 
Private landlords are helped by letting agents, who may or may not be part of an estate agency chain. Letting agents are almost completely unregulated and there have been many complaints from both tenants and landlords about dishonesty, high and unclear charges and underhand practices. This week, the government introduced some new rules for the sector. But will they improve the lot of the tenant, or for that matter, the landlord? Emma Dunkley joins me now. Emma, what has the government announced this week? Yes, so later this year, all lettings agents and property management firms will be required to join one of three approved redress schemes. And the idea of this is that landlords and tenants will have a more straightforward route to hold their agents to account if anything goes wrong. And these three schemes will all have the powers to investigate any sorts of hidden fees or lacking quality of service that they provide. But until now, these letting agents haven't had to join any of these three redress schemes, whereas agents that sell property have had to be a member of these schemes. Okay, and I read somewhere that something like two-fifths of letting agents aren't a member of any scheme at all. Exactly, that's correct. And I should also say that this coincides with a recent report out by the Property Ombudsman, which shows that there's record high levels of complaints by landlords and tenants against letting agents and sales agents. The report which came out this week shows that there's been a 23% increase in complaints last year compared to the year before, and that's 16,000 inquiries to these agents. Um, And in terms of letting specifically, about 50% of all complainants were landlords. Okay, we should be very clear that this is redress. That's not the same as regulation, is it? That's right. So while this redress is aimed to give greater protection to landlords and tenants, this doesn't mean that there's any change to the regulation. In fact, there's currently no regulation in place of the private sector letting agents. And the government's also clarified that it's not intended to introduce regulation into this sector because there's an existing range of available powers already underway in the consumer protection legislation. In the announcement this week, the Housing Minister was keen on avoiding more red tape for landlords and and the government has made it quite clear, really, that it doesn't want to regulate buy-to-let. Why do you think this is such a big issue? You mentioned the regulations and and the the redress that is there at the moment. What is that? I think any further red tape would stymie the sector. And this comes at a time when property prices are on the rise. There's a severe shortage of new housing. So there are lots of forecasts. There'll be a lot more people looking to rent. There's a lot of red tape for landlords to comply with, including health and safety regulations, um, requirements to meet furniture standards, their HMO licence. They've also got to meet standards over electrical safety, gas safety. They also have to deal with issues such as antisocial behaviour as well. So they've got quite a few things already that they've got to comply with. Now, if you're a tenant, or for that matter, a landlord, and you think you're getting poor service from a letting agent, what should you do? Your first port of call should be to complain to the letting agent itself. And then if you have no luck here, you can then go to one of the trade bodies that the letting agent might be a member of. If the letting agent isn't a member of a trade body, you can then go to a trading standards department and complain there. And failing that, the last resort would be to go to a small claims court. Okay, Emma, thank you very much. There's plenty more on the business of regulating letting agents on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, you pay a fund manager to beat the index, not hug it. But how do you find a high conviction stock picker? First, though, let's look at a sector that is treated with reverence in the US, but widely dismissed in the UK. I'm talking about technology. UK investors never really recovered from the technology bust at the end of the millennium. Since then, America has given us Google, Facebook, Twitter and a rejuvenated Apple. 
But Britain, the country that invented computing and the World Wide Web, has produced barely a technology company of note, aside perhaps from Arm, the chip designer. Most of the few technology funds available here invest in Nasdaq-traded companies rather than UK ones. But Britain does have a technology sector, and it is possible to invest in it if you know where to look and if you're prepared to take some risks. I'm joined now by Sally Davis, who writes about technology for the Financial Times. Sally, thanks very much for joining us. We've had Silicon Fen, and more recently we've had Silicon Roundabout. Can you describe the UK tech sector to us? It certainly isn't like the tech sector in the US, is it? No, that's right. UK companies in technology do tend to be smaller and more specialist, and because we don't have the big and relatively homogenous uh, domestic consumer market in the US, we don't get some of those consumer-facing giants that generate a lot of buzz there. So it's partly why you see a company like King Entertainment, which developed the Candy Crush game and has the core of its operations in London, float on the US markets earlier this year. There are exceptions that prove the rule, of course, although they do tend to operate in the business-to-business space. So you mentioned Arm already from Cambridge, who provide the microchip designs that power the iPhone, and there's also the accounting behemoth Sage. But there are also some new and interesting listed companies um, operating in enterprise software who do so-called big data, which involves storing and crunching huge amounts of digital information across a network of distributed servers. So this allows businesses to store their data more securely because it's stored in multiple places, and also to do clever things like. Addictive algorithms because they can harness combined computing power. Okay, that all sounds very specialist and niche. Is that right? That's correct. You do see a lot of other niche companies, particularly coming out of、uh, the UK's universities. So, for example, in recent months, we've seen three companies come to market that are trying to commercialise graphene, the so-called miracle material. But again, those are、uh, relatively niche applications at this stage. Now, many private investors in the UK were scarred by the dot-com collapse. They put money into the sort of Axa Framlington fund that. That, that bombed, or they lost fortunes in companies like Baltimore Technologies. Are there signs of a re-emergence of interest in、uh, in technology in Britain? Are past sins being forgiven? I don't know if I'd go that far. I would say that investors here are showing an appetite for growth. For that reason, you've seen a very positive response to、uh, several recent technology-enabled IPOs, many of which are operating in the online retail space. They tended to surge on their first day, although they have been quite hard hit by the sell-off in recent months. But I think the sense is that the response to those floats is partly because UK investors are keen to invest in disruptive technology companies and are looking for anything that. Has a veneer of technology. You mentioned a sell-off, and obviously last week there was quite a severe correction in the、um, price of some technology shares in the U.S. Has that affected companies here, or have they been less affected because they are either smaller or they're not trading on such exciting multiples? It has affected、uh, listed companies here in the UK. The sense in the market is that、um, it's more of a correction than a bursting of the bubble, and、um, that the stocks that have been affected are those that、uh, were subject to overoptimism. And there are some still very interesting propositions in the market.、And、I think what the sell-off has demonstrated is that the notion of a technology company is perhaps becoming increasingly redundant because it's very hard to group, for example, online takeaway marketplaces as a technology company alongside a company like Google. Really, it's a question about who is going to be able to use technology to fundamentally change the way a market works or create a new market, as opposed to just using technology to operate more efficiently, as players in the sector always have. Okay, now if you buy a UK technology fund, you're effectively 
chances are buying a lot of exposure to the US market and to shares like Google, Apple or Microsoft or Cisco. How do ordinary investors get exposure to the UK's best technology companies, which, as you pointed out, are generally a lot smaller? That's right. Well, there is the option of uh, trading yourself on the AIM junior market. Um, and there are some specialist UK tech funds, although, as you mentioned, not very many. You have more options if you self-certify as a sophisticated investor or a high net worth individual, in which case you can go through vehicles such as the Enterprise Investment Scheme, the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme and Venture Capital Trust. Another option is to join what's called an angel syndicate, where you can go into deals into early stage startups alongside other individual investors. This is quite a good idea because early stage investing is very, very risky. The chances are you're going to lose your money in any single investment. And so it's good to have access to other people's experience and knowledge. Some other interesting options, um, which include what's called equity crowdfunding. Um, so online portals like Cedars and Square Knot, based on what you might be familiar with, Kickstarters, which involves investing very small amounts, sometimes as small as £10, into a startup that has posted a pitch. Um, and if they reach their funding target, then you get equity in exchange for your stake. And if they don't, you get your money back. Thanks very much, Sally. You can read lots more about UK technology and how to invest in it, including some more stock suggestions, in this weekend's FT Money, where it's our cover feature this week. FT Money is available on both Saturday and Sunday as part of the Weekend FT, which you can also read on tablets, Kindles and online at ft.com forward slash money. We'd also love to know what you think. You can leave comments on articles on our website at ft.com forward slash money or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. The debate about active fund management versus passive has raged on for decades. Passive investments, which merely aim to track a particular index, are very cheap to run, but they will never outperform. Advocates of active management, on the other hand, say that paying a fund manager to pick stocks should help keep investors out of overvalued companies or dangerous situations. Critics say that in reality, most active managers do little better than the index and quite a few do a lot worse. They also say that the structure of the industry and its focus on asset gathering means that risk aversion is widespread. To use the words of J.M. Keynes, for a fund manager, it's better to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. Many fund managers are in fact hugging the indices against which their funds are benchmarked, effectively charging high fees and doing a lot of trading, simply to achieve what an index tracker could have done for a lot less. But how do you know if your fund manager is one of this unfortunate breed? Some research out this week from State Street, the US bank, suggested that the number of holdings in a fund manager's portfolio is a key indicator. I'm joined now by Ben Yearsley, who picks funds for Charles Stanley Directs, the DIY investment platform. Ben, we've just been through the ISA season where many investors will have looked at their investments and perhaps chosen some new funds. Are there any areas, do you think, where we can fairly honestly say that a passive fund is as good an option as any other? The obvious place is the US. It's the market that's the most widely analysed, most widely covered, has, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand stocks, huge number there. But it seems to be the most difficult market to actually outperform on a long term consistent basis. And therefore that is probably the one true market where you could say, if you can't decide actually look at a, an index tracking fund or an ETF. Um, but within that, you've got a very variety of different indices you can actually look at. Uh, and that's, I suppose, a follow-on question is, it's all one and good saying you're going to buy index tracking, 
but what tracker do you buy and what index do you track? And if you're looking for an active manager, how do you find one who is definitely not going to rack up costs simply tracking a benchmark? Is it about the mandate? Is it about the individual? Is it the size of the fund or the house style? Or as State Street have postulated, the number of holdings? The number of holdings is the obvious place to start. If you're a fund that's trying to beat the benchmark of the FTSE 100, if you've got 90 holdings, the likelihood is you're tracking the index. If you've got 30, the likelihood is you are taking some active bets. But it isn't all about the number of holdings. Uh, Looking back at the last 25 years or so, two of the most successful managers in the UK, Anthony Bolton, for a start, had over 200 holdings in his Fidelity Special Sits Fund. Now, on this basis, you'd look at it and say, sorry, that's, that's tracking an index or not taking conviction. But Anthony was taking a huge conviction. So you can look at the number of holdings. Yes, it's a start. But you also need to look at how they're picking their holdings. Are they doing it... Uh, relative to a benchmark? Are they benchmark agnostic? So it then does come down to the mandate of the fund. What's the manager being allowed to do with the fund, with his holdings? Is he allowed to deviate from sector weightings by only 2%, 4%, 5%? Or does he ignore the benchmarks and, and the indices and manage how he wants to manage, buying the companies he wants to buy? Someone made the point to us this week that uh, high conviction stock picking of the of the type you describe there only really works, of course, if the stock picker is any good. Um, how do you assess the quality of the fund manager without relying too much on past performance, which, of course, we're always being told is not a guide to the future? In answer to your question, that's correct. You do have to look at how they've performed, unfortunately. But the key is not looking at just one number. Don't look at a 10-year number and say, well, he's outperformed that by that over that time period you need to break it down more and say look at yearly numbers for example how's he done over the last five discrete years has he beaten an index or the index that he's claiming to want to beat each year or three out of five years or four out of five years for example or over longer time periods and finally who do you rate at the moment as a manager who has walked the walk consistently over a reasonably long period and not been afraid to deviate from a benchmark index or indeed not to have a benchmark index mm. at all some funds just say well we'll, we'll aim for inflation plus x or... there's a whole variety out there that actually have beaten and clearly there's a whole number that have gone nowhere near a couple i would highlight one uh, alexander darwall at jupiter who manages the jupiter european investment trust and fund He's got an exceptional long-term track record, beating the index over virtually every time period. He's not interested in the index. He buys companies that he thinks are going to be long-term growth-orientated businesses. There's other ones, uh, Angus Tullock and the First State team, uh, First State Asia Pacific, a high-conviction manager, 57 stocks or 60 stocks in that portfolio. Again, great long-term average. You think how many companies he can choose from in Asia. Standard Life UK smaller companies, Harry Nimmo, Fantastic long-term performance again, a very tight list of holdings in both his fund and his trust. There are a large number out there, but there's also a large amount of uh, poorly performing managers who, as you say, are closet trackers, and you wouldn't, wouldn't really want to pay for that performance. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. That was Ben Yearsley of Charles Stanley Direct. There's more on the pros and cons of high conviction investing, including more thoughts on who does it notably well, in this weekend's FT Money. If you want to add your own comments, let us know about a hot topic, or simply share your thoughts on something we've written, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is FT Money, or you can go online to ft.com forward slash money, or you can send us an email. The address, once again, is money at ft.com. 
We will be back again next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Emma, Sally, and our special studio guest, Ben Yearsley. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.